Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Wednesday, December 8th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting the show on Monday, December 13th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 86th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show features our special guest, Simon Elliott from the Center for Economic Policy Research. After returning to the United States from Honduras after witnessing their recent elections, our focus on this show is on recent Honduran elections and Honduran life. But unlike NPR, we give you the historical context that they consistently ignore and at times misrepresent surrounding Honduras as well as the region of the South as a whole and the influences of U.S. foreign policy. Meanwhile, we provide accurate and necessary information left out of mainstream media coverage and by bringing lightness into that darkness, that historical and contextual void It provides our listeners with the opportunity to get much closer to the truth of what and how our U.S. foreign policy has influenced the events unfolding in Honduras and other countries of the South. When it comes to U.S. foreign policy influences on the countries we intervene in, we ask you to consider the simple question that indicates whether we're bringing democracy to other countries or its opposite. Are you better off before or after the governments we seek to see in power, come to power. We provide you with well-documented proof of six or seven countries' experience with U.S. foreign policy and ask you to be the judge of this indicting information. In closing this introduction, as you are listening to this show, last week on December 9th and December 10th, the quote-unquote Summit for Democracy of the Joe Biden administration which was a virtual summit, was hosted by the United States to quote-unquote renew democracy at home and confront autocracies abroad, end quote. The three themes are defending against authoritarianism, addressing and fighting corruption, and advancing respect for human rights. Please consider the information you hear tonight and contact us with questions as you make a decision as to whether this is honest democracy or outright propaganda that we call the Summit for Democracy. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos. We have a very special guest that we'll be introducing shortly. 
I wanted to start the show off. I was listening to NPR in my car, which I do regularly, and it's uh, very disturbing when it comes to their foreign policy coverage over the years that I've listened and studied their foreign policy presentations. Consistently, they leave out really important context, and by context, I mean history. In fact, we will start giving you hard examples on a regular basis on this show, but in the interest of time, I just wanted to relate that I was listening to their coverage of the Honduran election that, of course, was just late last month and this past week, and they uh, they framed the Honduran setting by by indicating that there'd been two recent hurricanes and COVID, and that those were the main drivers that had just devastated their economy. And there was no mention of the, of the U.S. investment profiteering that, that we have discussed in some depth just a couple of weeks ago in our fair trade versus free trade program, and no mention of the 2009 coup that overthrew President Zelaya at the time. And so, anyhow, I just wanted to start the show off by announcing that we're going to be juxtaposing that NPR coverage with the historical context, the context that I think is important for people to have in order to get at the truth of what's going on in the world, if that is your interest. While NPR routinely does outstanding reporting around domestic issues on reproductive rights or climate change, etc., when it comes to foreign policy issues, they consistently present one-sided information, and we will be featuring regularly concrete examples of this prejudicial reporting. Again, we are talking about the routine absence within their presentations of historical context that what is absent are those issues that seem to contradict the dominant narrative being pushed by our U.S. foreign policy advocates. And it creates the very darkness we seek to bring light into so the American public can see the whole body of evidence that proper investigative journalism is duty-bound to produce for us to then shape our own opinions upon. Anyhow, with that being said, I wanted to frame the show tonight by going back and looking from a U.S. foreign policy initiative outcomes as to uh, what our U.S. foreign policy outcomes are in the countries that we intervene in. And there's a disturbing pattern. It's a consistent pattern. And wanted to give you some detailed examples that we've covered some of this in the past, but not recently. In Ecuador, for instance, Rafael Vicente Carrillo, he was an Ecuadorian politician, and he's also an economist, and he served as the president of Ecuador from 2007 to 2017. And during his one-decade time in office, the results of Carrillo's Citizens Party government in that one decade from 2007 to 2016 speak for itself. That old question that Ronald Reagan put out there, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Well, this question is, are you better off now than you were 10 years ago? Which is what we wanted to start the show off with Ecuador. Well, clearly, Ecuadorians were better off 10 years later if you were part of the majority population. And really, I mean, isn't that democracy what's best for the most amount of people, right? So that's what we look at during this show to measure the effectiveness of government and, you know, how does it impact the majority population? And in fact, our guest that I'll shortly introduce is working at the Center for Economic Policy Research. And Mark Weisbrot, the esteemed Ph.D. economist and co-director at that center, wrote an article detailing straightforward evidence to that point about Ecuador. In his article in 2017 of February the 14th, 
It was in The Nation magazine. It was entitled Ecuador's Left-Wing Success Story. He documented how 38% reduction in poverty during this administration, 47% reduction in extreme poverty during this administration of 10 years, social spending as a percentage of GDP doubled, including large increases in spending on education and health care. Educational enrollment increased sharply for ages 17 and under, and spending on higher education as a percent of GDP became the highest in all of Latin America. The average annual growth of income per capita was much higher than in the prior 25 years, 1.5 versus 0.6%. And inequality was considerably reduced. And that's wealth inequality, of course. Public investment as a percent of GDP more than doubled. And the results were widely appreciated in, you know, in new roads, he mentions, hospitals, schools, and access to electricity. The government that followed the Carrillo government, the U.S.-friendly Lenin-Mareno government, immediately began reversing those impressive gains made for the majority population by pursuing an IMF-mandated package of reforms that required the dismissal of thousands of public sector employees. It reduced the size of the public sector, initiated privatization of parts of the public sector, particularly the public banking services, and it slashed education and health care spending. In an article reflecting data just two years into the Moreno administration, the article was entitled Ecuadorians Revolt Against Repressive U.S.-backed President Lenin Moreno's Neoliberal Policies by Dennis Rogertuk. That was on uh, October 7, 2019. The author documents how poverty and inequality had risen significantly in just those first two years. Under Moreno's tenure, during that two-year period, from 2017 to 2019, the level of structural poverty increased some 10% from 23.1% in June of 2017 to 25.5% in June of 2019. Extreme poverty has also seen a rise from 8.4% to 9.5%. That's a greater than 10% rise during that same two-year time period. With respect to the economic equality gains made under the Carrea government of 10 years or more, within two years under Moreno, the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of economic inequality, had increased rather significantly from 0.462 in June of 2017 to 0.478 in June of 2019. Basically, what that just shows empirically is that Moreno's policies of reducing social spending was principally benefiting the rich, and it was reflected in the wealth transfer. Uh, if we move to Bolivia, Evo Morales, he served as the president of Bolivia from 2006 to 2019, a 13-year period. He's another Latin American leader that our U.S. foreign policy despises, and our mainstream media dutifully misrepresents accordingly. Uh, are you better off now than you were 13 years ago is the question that I was pursuing looking at this administration. In an article, Evo and Bolivia Bother the Empire, back in November 14th of 2019 by Oscar Sanchez Serra, we discover the truth here. You absolutely were better off if you were part of the majority population under the Evo Morales government's tenure. He served as president from 2006 to 2019, and in that 13 years, illiteracy was reduced from 13% in 2006 to 2.4% in 2018. 
Unemployment was lowered from 9.2% to 4.1%, the lowest in the region. Moderate poverty rates of 60% dropped to 34.6% during that tenure. Extreme poverty rates dropped from 38.2% to 15%, the article documents. That government built more than 5,000 educational centers, more than 1,000 health facilities, created financial assistance for the elderly with a dignity bonus, and for children, the Juancito Pinto bonus, contributing to a significant increase in school retention. And at the time of the writing of this article, the country is now the fastest growing in the region, raising the GDP to $43 billion, up from $9 billion in 2005 when the government took office. So Evo and Bolivia bothered the empire was that source. Moving on, hopefully you're starting to get the tenor here. If you look at Haiti, and in 1990, Aristide, the first democratically elected president of Haiti, after 186 years after their independence, Aristide, in a coup that was backed by the U.S., a coup regime came in from 1991 to 1994, so the Aristide elected government didn't even last a year. Clinton, he made a deal with Aristide, kind of a neoliberal deal again that restored to power President Aristide from 1994 to 1996, where Aristide then formed the Fanmi-Lavalas party. Then in 1996, in the context of Haitian law that prohibited Aristide from succeeding himself for a second term, Prime Minister René Proval, an Aristide ally, was elected president in 1996 with 88% of the vote. Aristide was re-elected in November of 2000 with 92% of the vote, representing the Fanmi Lavalis party he had formed in 1996 and his administration served the Haitian people until February 2004 coup that deposed him. So essentially you had a 10-year period of 1994 to 2004 in which Aristide and his allies in the Fanmi Lavalis party made great social and material advances for the majority population of Haiti. All of this within the context of U.S. covert and overt efforts to undermine Aristide and the Lavalis party throughout this 10-year period. But during this period of time, for nearly 10 years, the Haitian people had its only democracy in its 500-year history. And during that time, with the founding Lavalas party, they slashed illiteracy. They moved forward with substantial land reform. They subsidized school books. They expanded lunch programs. The hated military was disbanded. Women's rights and high government positions were awarded to them accordingly. The minimum wage was raised in 1995, and it got doubled again in 2003. They started collecting unpaid taxes from wealthy community stores with price drops, created a big drop in malnutrition. All of these human right gains, all this was lost with the 2004 U.S.-enabled coup. The recurring theme reveals itself again, this time in Haiti. A 10-year period in which clearly the majority population was better off than they ever had been is subverted by U.S. policy, and the result is horrific living conditions persist in Haiti to this day. And when you check out Iraq and the U.S. foreign policy impact on the majority population there, I mean, I don't want to go through the whole world here, but the living conditions and death rates as a consequence of Western sanctions and then a criminal U.S.-led invasion there in 2003, millions died in the Middle East Arab country with the arguably the most advanced culture and economy before all that intervention 
was devastated based on lies of going to war and the U.S. foreign policy intervention. In 2011, in Libya, what were the quality of life living conditions there for the majority population? Well, before that U.S. NATO-led intervention, they in fact had the highest, the best living conditions of any country of the, on the African continent, as measured by the well-respected Human Development Index marker, the HDI. Yet the Obama administration lied us into accepting that we intervened to avoid a humanitarian crisis. Yet there was no country of the 50-plus countries of Africa that provided a better quality of life for its majority population. What was the result of that led war crime? Ten years later now, we're in 2021, it's a broken nation. Slavery has returned. CNN reported those instances, among other folks. How is that promoting democracy? How is any of this promoting democracy when example after example we can show whenever our foreign policy of intervention or coup promotion succeeds, the majority populations are suffering significantly and measurably, and it can be shown empirically. And our last example really brings us to the subject of tonight's show, Honduras. And before I turn to that issue, I just wanted to welcome to the show our very special guest. That would be Simon Elliott. Simon, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you so much, Pedro. I'm very glad to be here and appreciate the invitation. Oh, absolutely. Well, Simon, he's, he's the international program intern at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, in which we've already spoken of. Prior to joining CEPR, Simon worked for the City of Worcester Office of Human Rights and the Massachusetts Fair Housing Center. And his research interests include social movements, elections, and U.S. intervention in Latin America. He holds both a B.A. in political science and Spanish and an MPA, a Master's of Public Administration from Clark University. And before we turn to your article, which we'll get to in just a second, I wanted to set the stage a little bit on the same type of theme of, of the kinds of governments that we support and the kinds of governments that we overthrow and the common result for the majority populations in those countries when our foreign policy wins out is that they lose and lose very badly. And Honduras provides yet another example of the same. And then we'll turn to your, your article of uh, November 27th as you're actually in Honduras during these crucial elections. But let me just say this real quick. As you should know, if you want to know anything about Honduras, there was a coup on the 29th of June in 2009. And it was the Obama administration that enabled it. The rewriting of history and the news coverage claimed it was not a U.S. or it was not even a coup. But this is what Hugo Lawrence, the U.S. ambassador to Honduras, said, and I quote, There is no doubt that the military, Supreme Court, and National Congress conspired on June 28, 2009, in what constituted an illegal and unconstitutional coup against the executive branch. End quote. And President Manuel Zelaya had taken office in January of 2006. And there was a paper that I read with great interest and actually had Jose Antonio Cordero on. He was actually doing some work for the Center for Economic Policy Research at the time. And these are economists. These are PhD economists. So they put together stuff that's really well vetted and honest. And he compared the majority population quality of life under Zelaya government to the government it had replaced and detailed empirically the improved conditions. The post-coup conditions are indisputable, and I'm going to be asking our guest to explain 
that period of time. Post 2009 coup to today, December 2021. But I just wanted to go through just a couple of the issues connected to his paper on Honduras. And he, he mentions that they enacted, and this is Zelaya, a 60% increase in the minimum wage. This was on December 23rd, 2008, after a month of fruitless negotiations between the workers and the employers, the Zelaya administration decided to increase the monthly minimum wage. It was a 60% increase, but it still did not meet the minimum bundle, which is the minimum needs of the people getting the deals. It still created a furor among the business classes. The social reforms that he was responsible for under his administration went well beyond the increase in minimum wage, though. In particular, his administration removed one of the critical barriers in education, the national policy of mandatory school fees. And abolishing these fees opened the doors of the elementary school to more than 450,000 Honduran children, which is a significant number in such a small country. It also implemented more than a 25% increase in the number of children receiving free school lunches in a very poor country. These various food programs were also expanded, increasing the number of children receiving one free school meal to just over one million kids. Uh, and as a comparison, 800,000 children benefited from the program in 2005 before they got into power there. So it increased it somewhat 25%. The government also significantly increased access to education. We mentioned that, I think, already. But in December uh, 22nd of 2007, it became a member of Petrocarib, a pact for energy cooperation. Very progressive alliances were made. The joining of ALBA, which is the Bolivarian Alternative for the Americas, that was ratified by the Honduran Congress in October of 2008. And this is what you'll learn really irks the United States foreign policy. When developing countries collaborate in fair trade alliances to help each other, it essentially robs Western investment of regions to more fully exploit. And then just quickly, just to show you the, the quality of the administration here with respect to the majority population, there was that world recession that began in 2008. But despite being the third poorest country in Latin America with the lowest wages in Central America, the economy nevertheless did very well during the Zelaya administration, the author says. Honduras was the fastest growing country in Central America after Costa Rica with a GDP growth of some 6.6% in 2006, 6.3% in 2007. And due to the world recession in 2008, it slowed down, but it's still a positive 4%. Basically, the economy clearly grew more than during the previous administration. Poverty was reduced significantly in the first two years, from 65.8% down to 60%, and inequality also fell. I don't want to go on, but subsequently to the coup that we said was in 2009, there's a whole period of time that leads up to these elections, and we want to get to the elections that just occurred, but I would rather start, if I could, Simon, with having you share the period of time since the coup, there's been considerable corruption and certainly political violence. You know, you've been down there. You actually monitored the elections. Can you give us an overview and give a walk us through the last 10 years or so uh, with respect to what it's like to be a Honduran? Yeah, and I, I appreciate that, that wonderful introduction. Um, to to the issue and, and linking Honduras to so many other countries in the region. 
um, who've experienced similar fortunes. Yeah, as you said, since there were some modest gains, but gains nonetheless in the quality of life for um, a lot of Hondurans during the administration of Manuel Zelaya before the 2009 coup, since then, a lot of those advances have been turned back, um, and a lot of things have returned to the kind of the pre-Zelaya era, if not worse. So the subsequent governments of all of them who belong to the National Party since the coup, and especially in the last eight years of the current president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who I'm sure we'll talk about more later, the governments have been fundamentally undemocratic, been rampant corruption, and the economy has been oriented towards benefiting a small and wealthy, both domestic and transnational capitalist class. Yeah, before diving too much into the numbers of, of the economy, I think it's also important to note that it's been also a profoundly unpopular government, especially the one of Juan Orlando. A 2019 study found that 81% of Hondurans who were asked thought the country was heading in the wrong direction. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways we could take this question, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what other questions you have. But, yeah, the administration has been corrupt, undemocratic. Like you said, there's been this very violent implementation of a very violent form of neoliberalism in Honduras in the last 10 years. I mean, it's cost the lives of countless Hondurans and also very many human rights defenders, environmentalists, etc. So... Yeah, it's so interesting to me that when we have a country that we dislike and we want to change their government, we will magnify any inconsistency around human rights into a monstrous crime. Yet when it's a country and a government that we endorse, it is completely ignored. And so in your article, I mean, there's so many things you touched on, but can you tell our audience a little bit more? This government of President Juan Orlando Hernandez, you were mentioning the corruption, but his brother was not just accused. Wasn't he convicted of trafficking violations and cocaine? Can you fill us in on some specific examples of that corruption? Yeah, um, exactly. So Juan Orlando's brother named Tony, he was actually sentenced just this year to life in prison in the United States for cocaine trafficking from Honduras to the United States. And there's a widely held belief that Juan Orlando himself, the current sitting president of Honduras, upon leaving office, that he will be facing charges, similar charges, in the Southern District of New York. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out once he leaves office um, at the end of January or January 26th, uh, to be precise. Very interesting. But before we go on, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We'll be back in a flash.